Okay, it's picking up my big mouth. That's great. Uh, open your Bibles to James chapter 1. Today we're going to be finishing James chapter 1. And specifically, we're going to be looking today at verses 26 and 27. James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. And, um, you know, I was thinking about this as I was studying this week for the message, right? One of the most common rebuttals that you'll tend to hear when you share the gospel with people is something that goes like this. It's like, um, you don't know my heart. You don't know my heart, and therefore you cannot judge me. I love God in my own way. I mean, if I had a dime for every time I heard that, uh, I'd be a wealthy man today. The problem with this statement is simply this, is that that statement of faith does not usually support their actions. There's usually a big difference between how they behave and what they say is their love for God. As James previously stated in chapter 1 and verse 22, he reminds us to be doers of the word of God, not merely hearers of the word of God. Those that simply listen. But the believer is a doer of the word of God. And so consequently, people who make this type of profession prove themselves to be hearers of the word, but not doers of the word. In our previous study of this epistle in James verses 22 to 25, again, we read where James encourages believers, prove yourselves to be doers of the word of God. And he continues on by saying, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. I started out this study, when we started studying James, I said, listen, number one, it's a very convicting book. That's number one. Number two, it is about faith. All of it is about faith. And specifically, it's about a living and an active faith, not an intellectual and a passive faith. So when James talks about hearers who delude themselves, James talks about those who miscalculate. That's what that word deceive or delude means. It means to miscalculate. He's saying those that are hearers of the word of God, they miscalculate their position in Jesus Christ. Why? Because the new birth brings change. That is irrefutable. If you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you will see that the people who know their God demonstrate that in their lives. Not through sinless perfection, but through continual sanctification, continually being separated unto God. And so the believer, the believer's pursuit is a passion. I want you to get this. It is a passion for the intimate knowledge of God, for the experiential knowledge of God, and a delight in the will and in the word of God. I, I, that is the characteristic of the believer. And anything less than that, well, I would, 
challenged to say, if you don't have a passion for the word of God, if you don't have a passion for the will of God, if, if, if you don't pursue, you don't desire an intimate knowledge of God, then chances are you may not know God. And this is what James is reminding these people about. The hearer of the word of God, James said, is like the one who looks in a mirror and when he's gone away, he forgets what he looks like. Right? And these comments of James, especially in verses 22 to 25, there, you know, James is showing it's in response to another test. And the test is, how do we respond to the word of God? That's the test. And so today we're going to look at a fourth test. James has already show, shown us how believers respond to trials in verses 2 to 12. He has shown us how believers respond to temptation in verses 13 to 17. He showed us how believers respond to the word of God in verses 18 to 25. But now... At the end of chapter 1, James is going to show us how believers apply the Word of God. How believers apply the Word of God. So we're going to look at that today. And in applying the Word of God, we're going to look at two ways we apply the Word of God that James addresses. The first one is applying the Word of God in our speech. And the second one, is applying the word of God in our conduct. Let's take a look at the verse, the first one, verse 26. James writes, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Now, I really want you to pay attention. When you go home today, because we're concluding chapter one, may I suggest to you that when you go home today to read James chapter one from the beginning to the end, because we've talked a lot. We've, we've gone extensively into this passage and then highlight for yourself all of the various keywords that are contained therein. In verse 26 here, James is talking about applying the word of God in our speech. And the word of God has much to say about the tongue or our speech. Proverbs 10.20 says this, The tongue of the righteous is as choice silver. The heart of the wicked is worth little. Proverbs 15 verse 2. The tongue of the wise man makes knowledge acceptable, but the mouth of the fool spouts folly. Proverbs 18.21. By the way, this is one of the most misunderstood verses in Scripture. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat of its fruit. Now, I, I just, I got to make a comment about this. This particular verse is used by word of faith people that says we can speak things into existence. We can't speak anything into existence. There was one who spoke things into existence. There was one who spoke everything out of nothing, and it's God himself. 
right? So I just want to throw that out there. Death and life, I don't have time to go through this in detail, but death and life are in the power of tongue. It explains something that is very different. By your words, you can speak, you know, death. You could be convicted of something, but we're not going to get into that right now. In James chapter 3, James speaks further of the tongue in verse 3-6. He calls the tongue a fire. He refers to the tongue as the very world of iniquity. He says it can defile the whole body and is set ablaze by hell. The tongue can do some mighty things. James is writing believers regarding living an active faith in Jesus Christ. And in concluding this opening context of responding and applying to the word of God, James has much to say regarding Christian speech and its relation to true faith. Its relation to true faith. Look what he says here. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, let's stop there. In this verse, Again, he's speaking of the tongue. He's not speaking of the physical or organ, but rather that which proceeds out of the mouth. That which proceeds out of the mouth. Previously in verse five, uh, 25, as we mentioned, James wrote about the doer of the word of God. And he says this, he's the, he's the one who looks intently at the perfect law of liberty and abides by it. He calls this person in verse 25 an effectual doer. An effectual doer. This is someone that is living their faith out, someone who is being effective in their testimony and in their faith. And of this effectual doer in verse 25, James says, he will be blessed in all he does. Now in verse 26, he contrasts that effectual doer with the person who is religious in nature. And this word religious that he uses there in verse 26, if anyone thinks himself to be religious, this word actually means like outward religious character. That's what it means. Like an an exterior type of religious. You know, one who's very careful about observance of rituals. And in this context here that James is using, he's speaking of formalistic, ritualistic religion, focusing on observations and traditions. This is the same word that is used of the Pharisees in Acts 26.5. Now, how does we relate to this? We can equate this word with many who attend church and are committed to the religious form without genuine saving faith in Jesus Christ. There's a big there's a lot of talk in the church world, right? The church is in trouble. The church is doing this. The church is doing that. I like what Paul Washer says. Paul Washer says, there's so much talk about what's wrong with the church. It's because most of the church is not the church. There's a lot of exterior worship. There's a lot of tradition. There's a lot of formality. 
There's a lot of external ritual. But there is a deep void of those who attend church of a genuine and real faith in Jesus Christ. Don't be deceived by numbers. You know, this this person has a 5,000 person church and a 10,000 person church. That doesn't mean anything. The church is the body of believers. The church is the born again believers in Jesus Christ. And the Christians that comprise the church have an active relationship with Christ. And that is the key. This outward form of religion presents a real danger because it comes with the morality. It comes with an ethics. And it comes with an exterior that veils itself. Listen, who was more religious than the Pharisees? Who was more religious than them? Who was more pious? They robed themselves in regal attire. They spent days and, and years meditating upon the law of God and the, and, 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 and the outward manifestations of the Lord. But in Matthew twelve fourteen, notice what Jesus says to the Pharisees. You brood of vipers. How can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The mouth speaks that which fills the heart. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And if venom comes out, if anger comes out, if coldness comes out of the words that are being projected, there is inherently a problem with the heart. Think of the Pharisees again. How did they speak of Jesus? There was nothing in a loving manner. There was nothing in a loving context. As a matter of fact, they spoke words of murder because they wanted our Lord crucified. It is out of the mouth that the heart speaks. Pure religion speaks forth praises of God and the things of God, not the things that cut and hurt and destroy. This is James' point here in verse 26. Our tongues, our speech can be instruments of blessing. They can be instruments of hurt. No doubt about that. I'm sure in our Christian lives we are often hurt by those who use their tongue as a sword to cut. And they cut with words many times in the name of being transparent. That's the thing that always makes me laugh. You know, look, I want to be honest with you and then here it comes. Stab, 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 stab. And we have all met those who appear to take pleasure. They appear to take pleasure in cutting in hurtful words. James states that if all the tradition of religion is there, but one does not bridle the tongue, then that person deceives themselves. And that word bridle there is to hold in check. And of course, you probably know it comes from a bit and bridle, right? That you put in a, 
in a horse's mouth. James says, if, if all of this, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart. That's a great word, that word for deceive. It's, it's using like a tactic, like seduction. And it gives distorted impressions. James says, if these things are present, this man's religion is worthless. Worthless. Devoid of truth. Unreal. Ineffectual. What did James say in verse 25? In verse 25 he said, But the one who looks at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in all he, all he does. That's the man. That's the man with the pure religion. That's the person that follows hard after Christ. That's the person that apprehends. But the opposite of that is what we see in verse 26. This person, although maintained all the exterior trappings of religion, but their tongue is speaking forth that which is coming out of the heart, which is not edifying, which is not glorifying to God. This religion is worthless. It is ineffectual. Stop and think for a moment. I really want you to think about this for a moment. Stop and think for a moment. How many on that great day are going to be there on the wrong side of eternity and their argument to the Lord is, what about all the years of religious service I gave you? We see them in Matthew 7, right? Lord, Lord, did I not do this, that, and the other thing in thy name? That's terrifying. That's horrible. And we have to remember that, by the way. When we speak to our unbelieving friends and family, and we have the temptation not to share the gospel. When we have the temptation to say, well, I don't want to offend this person. There is a day coming when every knee shall bow. There is a day coming when Jesus Christ is not going to be that bloody, battered human being that was upon the cross, nor is he going to be that babe in a manger. But he is going to be the ruling and reigning king. And everybody's going to give an account to him. Everybody. And so we must remember, you know, a lot of times you'll hear people say, well, that person is sincere. And as I've said time and time again, you could be sincere and you could be sincerely wrong. Right? You, you, you could believe nothing's going to happen when in actuality something bad is going to happen. And so we have to remember that. James here contrasts verse 25 and says the believer applies the word of God into his life. 
And that outward observation without inward change is worthless religion. Jesus says this in in Luke chapter 6, verse 45. The good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. And the evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. May it never be said, may all of us here be truly in Christ. May all of us here speak forth that which comes from the heart, that which is pure, that which is edifying, that which is glorifying. One of the reasons we want to saturate ourselves time and time again with the words of God, why we want to saturate ourselves with the hymns of the faith, time and time again with the hymns of the faith, to penetrate and permeate our heart with the word of God. Paul Washer says this, a lot of people think that Christianity is doing all the righteous things you hate and avoiding all the wicked things you love in order to go to heaven. No, that's that's a lost man with religion. A Christian is a person whose heart has been changed. They have new affections. Let's look at verse 27, applying the word in conduct. James says this, this is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. I like as he begins this with the two words that he uses. This is pure and undefiled. Pure means free from contamination. Undefiled means it's untainted. There is no imperfection. There is no impurity. James defines what pure and undefiled religion looks like. He speaks of a true faith in Christ with these words. That which is pleasing in the eyes of God. This is faith that God loves. The faith that we are to live and that is born from God. Listen, pure and undefiled religion delights. It delights in the law of God. Loves God. Seeks to glorify God. And it does so how? Through active obedience to the word of God. It is active obedience to the word and to the will of God. I think I used this last week. Turn over in your Bibles to Psalm 1. Psalm 1. Look at verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of the sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffers. Notice this. The man of God is a sanctified man. He's separated from the world. He's apart from the world. He doesn't sit in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't surround himself with the wicked. He doesn't stand in the in in the path of sinners, 
Look at verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. Day and night. This is pure and undefiled religion. And I want to be crystal clear with this because this can get distracted. We're never, ever, ever, ever talking about sinless perfection. Can we get that right? We're never talking about sinless perfection. But we are not talking about active disobedience. See, there's a difference. We all stumble and fall. The Bible says the righteous fall, they get up seven times. We all stumble and fall. John reminds us, right? That if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. He wouldn't have had to say that if believers were perfected, if we walk a perfect life. He wouldn't go on to say in 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why is that? Because we sin. But there is a difference between that and living a complete life of indifference and disobedience to the law of God. There's a complete difference. And brother and sister, if you're here today, if you're here today and there's sin in your life, then listen, The Bible commands you. Jesus commands you. By the authority of Scripture, I command you. Confess your sin and repent of your sin and be made right before God. Turn to Christ. Maybe you never turned to Christ before. Maybe you never had that moment in your life where you said, Father, forgive me, I'm a sinner. And you looked at your life and the convicting power of the Holy Spirit came down upon you. And you saw yourself as a sinner before a holy and righteous God. And you said, what am I going to do? Well, the word of God says repent. Turn from your sin and turn to Christ. Place all of your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Turn to Him. He's the only one that can atone for sin. And cry out to God and say, God, save me. Lest I die. James in verse 27 is talking about pure and undefiled religion. He's talking about this really becomes a summation of the whole chapter right here. James says this pure and undefiled religion, listen, is not concerned about how they are seen by men, but rather what is pleasing in the sight of God. Pure and undefiled religion proves what the will of God is. It proves it. Turn to Romans chapter 12, verse 2. I'm sure this isn't new news to anybody. Romans 
The Apostle Paul says this, Do not be conformed to this world. By the way, the world there is the world system. Cosmos. It's the world system. The Apostle Paul says this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Notice what he says. That you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Pure and undefiled religion proves what the will of God is. Pure and undefiled religion does not conform to the world. But as the Apostle Paul stated, it is transformed by the power of God. You all know Romans 1.16, right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power. And a lot of times you probably hear, heard it misinterpreted that that word means dynamite. It doesn't mean dynamite. It's the root word for the word dynamite. But it talks about power. It is power through God's ability. That's what Paul is saying. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. It's God's ability to bring men and women unto salvation. And listen, that power is contained in the proclamation of the gospel. And it is that transformation, it is that difference that is good, acceptable, and perfect. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, to be a Christian is not only to believe the teaching of Christ and to practice it, it is not only to try and follow the pattern and the example of Christ, and I love this next part, it is to be so vitally related to Christ that His life and His power are working in us. It is to be in Christ for Christ to be in us. Let me say that last sentence again because he puts it so well. It is to be so vitally related to Christ. Stop right there for a second. How related are we to Christ? Could it be said of us that we are vitally related to Christ? That Christ is indeed our source, our strength, our joy. Could it be said that Christ is our reason for living? Could it be said of us that I am linked to Christ, that I am tied to Christ, that I am connected at the hip with Christ? Could it be said of us that I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live this life? But the life I live is, is Christ in me. He goes on to say it is to be so vitally related to Christ that his life, there's Galatians 2.20 right there, that his life, and notice this, his power is working in us. Now I'm going to say something here. I believe that Martin Lloyd-Jones is not using power as a metaphor. I believe that Martin Lloyd-Jones is using power as the dunamis 
of Romans 1.16. In other words, it's power through God's ability. So the way to think about it is this. Is God's power, is God's ability working in and through your life? And if not, that's what we desire. That's why we pray for revival. But I will take it a step further. If you submit yourself to the Lord, if you're in prayer, if you're in the meditation and the study of the Word of God, if you're in fellowship with one another, I'll tell you this, what? God's power will work through your life. It will work through your life. And lastly, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, it is to be in Christ. I want to be in Christ. I want my life to be so conformed to his life that Christ is in me and Christ is living through me. This is what James refers to as pure and undefiled religion. A religion of faith, a religion of power, a religion of of new birth, not a religion merely of external observances. Look at verse 27 of James 1 again. James says, This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father. And now he says this, to, to visit orphans and widows in their distresses and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Widows and orphans were the most vulnerable of people in first century Palestine. One of the reasons was there was no welfare in those days. The man took care of the family. How? What's the word they use today? Patriarchal, that is. There was no welfare in those days. And the men had the responsibility for providing for the family. But you know what? That's not the way God had ordained it. The law provided for the care of widows and orphans. In Deuteronomy 26.12, Moses wrote, When you have finished paying all the tithe of your increase, in the third year, the year of tithing, Then you shall give it to the Levite, to the stranger, to the orphan, to the widow, that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. Jeremiah 22.3 says this, Thus says the Lord, Do justice and righteousness and deliver the one who has been robbed from the power of his oppressor. Also, do not mistreat or do violence to the stranger, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in that place. God has a special love for those that are least in society, those that are usually shunned in the society. He has a special place for widows and orphans. And to the widows that are here today, you must know, you must know that God has a special place for you. That God now becomes your husband. That God now becomes your caretaker. That God now oversees you and guides you. That you must not 
Forget that the Lord is your defender and that He loves you tremendously. James' statement is that of mercy to the most vulnerable when applying the Word of God. Again, here we go. Not just external form of religion. But what does the believer do? The believer responds to the Word of God, but the believer applies the Word of God, and that mandate goes out to all the church. We have an obligation and a responsibility to take care of those that are most vulnerable to us. We cannot ignore mercy. We are not to forget the needy or the hurting. Being a Christian involves doing and acting according to God's word. James continues and he says this, and this is an important one. Keep oneself unstained by the world. Listen, believers are to continually pursue holiness. We're to continue to pursue separation from the world. And James stated in verse 22, our response to the word of God is being one of a doer and not a hearer. Consequently, we are not to be passive in our faith. Following Christ does not involve any passivity at all. The Holy Spirit prompts believers to obey. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. 1 John 2, verses 4 and 5. The Apostle John writes this. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has been truly perfected. By this we know that we are in him. How do we know if we're in Christ? He just told us, keep his word. We keep his word. By this we know that we are in him. James would agree with what the Apostle John states here. Applying the word of God in faith is keeping the commandments of God and not just listening or hearing to them. By obeying God's word, we separate ourselves from the world. Listen, John further states in 1 John 2 verses 15 and 17, Do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If you love the cosmos, if you love this world system, if you're hung up and meditating and your whole life is about what you can get, Maybe the love of the Father is not there. He goes on in verse 17 and he says this, and the world is passing away, also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. We know what I love about the Apostle John. I may have said this when we went through the epistle of 1 John. That guy doesn't pull any punches, man. And James is the same way. Very direct. There's nothing that you could argue with there. When he says the one who loves God keeps his commandments, and if he doesn't, he's a liar. That's pretty straightforward. There's not much you could do with that. Pure and undefiled faith. 
proves its love for God. It proves its love for Christ. And in so doing, it is that one who will abide forever with God. So what's all of this about? We concluded chapter 1. What is this all about? What does this mean to me? As we close this first chapter, we are commanded, we are commanded, if you didn't get this, maybe I did a bad job preaching this, but we are commanded to pursue a life of holiness and to a life of active faith. Active faith before the Lord Jesus Christ. James calls believers not to be passive, not to live a life of indifference and intellectual belief in Christ, not to be like the person that I referenced opening up this message today that says, I have my faith and I worship God in my way. No, there's one way to worship God and that's his way. But the Christian life is to be vibrant. It is an abiding faith. The Christian life is to live purposefully in an evil and wicked generation. As we conclude the chapter, we have seen James talk about various tests of faith. God does this to produce good fruit for the kingdom of God. Just by way of review again, we've seen that God, some of the tests of faith that God gives us was first how believers respond to trials. James 1.12, which is a, a verse that's become near and dear to my heart. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trials for when he has been approved, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised for those who love them. So the first test is, how do we respond to trials? The second test was, how do believers respond to temptation? In verses 13 through 18, James tells us in James 1.13, Let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. The third test was how believers respond to the Word of God in verses 19 through 25. And in verse 22, as we've talked about, James says, prove yourselves to be doers of the Word of God and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. And lastly, as we saw today, the final test is how do believers apply the Word of God in verse 27, this is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So what's the personal application? You might be asking yourself, okay, what, is this, what does this mean for me? Well, the purpose of all this test is to find out whether or not one is walking right with God. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 and 6. Extremely important verse in the Bible. Test yourselves and see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourself? That Jesus Christ is in you. Unless indeed you fail the test. 
But I trust you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. What does this have to do with us? Let me tell you something. It has everything to do with us. Because the response to that question has eternal ramifications. Either blessing with an eternity in the presence of God or damnation in outer darkness away from God. Listen, I beg you, I really, really beg all of us, we must get the gospel right. This is life and death. We must get the gospel right. We must not take anything for granted. We must have, we must have repentant hearts before God. We must walk in truth before our God and not take the grace of God for license to live as we please and not according to God's word. This is critical. This is everything. I beg us today, let us examine ourselves before the Lord. Should we lack anything, let us come before the Lord with repentance in our hearts and be made right before God. There's a great hymn called Come Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy. And the opening stanza says this. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. This is the purpose of preaching. This is the purpose of the church. Christ comes ready to save and to deliver. I often think about myself, where would I be had God not Open my eyes to the truth and brought me to the place of repentance and faith in Christ. I would be the most miserable among mankind. And I often think of how close I came. You know, I'm thinking in, in time and space. God from eternity past, right, wrote the names of those that are saved in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. But I think in time and space, and I think about, oh my Lord, how close did I come to being separated from God for eternity. And it's only by God's grace, and it's only by God's mercy, and it's only by God's goodness by His sovereign grace that God reached out in the muck and mire to save me. But listen, don't be passive and intellectual with yours. God saves the sinner because of His great love, but also that the name of God would be exalted through every saved believer. And the question we have to deal with, is God exalted in my life?
Do I live a pure and undefiled religion? Is Christ my Lord? Is Christ my King? Have I bowed the knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and said, Lord, I surrender everything to you? Don't come to the Lord saying, Lord, I surrender everything to you, but I'm holding this bottle. I'm not going to let go of this bottle. I'll give you everything else, Lord, but you can't have this bottle. Or you can't have my wallet. Or you can't have my bank account. Or you can't have my home. Or you can't take my job away. We come to the Lord poor and needy. Broken. And what do we see? We look up and we see the cross of Christ dripping with the blood of the one who paid the penalty for my sin. And the question we got to ask is, have you been to the cross? Have you been to the cross? My favorite hymns, there is a fountain filled with blood and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stain. And the second stanza hits me like a punch in the head. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in that day. And there go I, as vile as he, as vile as he, washed all my sin away. Let us today get the gospel right. Let us today come confessing our sins with repentant hearts. So that Christ would be magnified in us. And that this would be pure and undefiled religion. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Father, as we come before you today, Lord. We do indeed bow before thy holy presence. Father, we pray that this this morning that the Spirit of God would fill this place. That the Spirit of God would search every heart right at this moment. Right at this moment, Father. That the Spirit of God would convict That the Spirit of God would reveal to us areas of our lives that we're still clinging to, Lord. We're still holding on to. That the Spirit of God would bring about repentance, Lord. That the Spirit of God would slay pride. Slay trusting in ourselves. Put to death, Lord, the things of this world and the lust of this world and and the attractions of this world and the greed. 
that, Father, Lord God, we would come to a place of pure and undefiled religion. That we would keep ourselves unstained from the world, Lord. And it seems like that's becoming ever increasingly more difficult. But Father, that it would be your power in us that gives us this victory. Pour forth your spirit, God. And Father, if there be anyone here today, Lord, maybe they've been coming to church from the time they were a child. Maybe they've made multiple professions of faith. Maybe they've been baptized when they were young, belonged to youth programs. Maybe now that they're older, they have kept with the tradition of religion, but have not entered into a relationship with you, Jesus, the sovereign King and Lord. Maybe they're deceived. And they've miscalculated their position in Christ. Father, break every chain. I love the prophet Jeremiah when he said, Is not my word a fire and a hammer that shattereth the stone? Be that purifying fire, Father. And take your hammer and break the hardness of sin, O oh God. Take the stony heart, Lord, and give us hearts of flesh. And I pray, Father, search our hearts, try us, and see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead us in the path everlasting. Lord, if there's anybody here today, even in this very moment, Lord, that they would cry out to you and say, God, save me a sinner. I sit under the justice and the judgment of God. There is no alternative. I can't stop this sinning. Save me, God. I turn to you and I turn to Christ and I place my eternal hope and trust in Jesus Christ. Father, extend thy hand to save today, Lord. We ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. and amen. Praise God. I'm going to ask my brother Ricky if you wouldn't mind coming forward, brother, to receive our tithes and offerings. Our tithes and offerings are for those who call Christ their home church. If you're visiting with us.